بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه يجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today's talk has been announced as the spirituality of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Before we continue, let me define the meaning of the term spirituality of the Prophet because it can be very easily misunderstood. No one can truly quantify and measure anyone's spirituality. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do that. So we can't measure or quantify anyone's spirituality, let alone that of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Furthermore, when speaking of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we are not, we shouldn't think of this as reducing him to a normal person about whose spirituality we are speaking and discussing. Now, the, the purpose of this, or the, or the true meaning and the eventual purpose of discussing this particular phrase and title, the spirituality of the Prophet wasallam, is the following. When we hear so many ahadith of the Messenger وسلم, we hear his accounts, we listen to his seerah, especially in this month because we are now approaching the end of the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. And traditionally, Muslims have always spoken about the Prophet وسلم, and his seerah, more so in this month than others. When we listen to his chronology of Sira, his life story, various details, we can lose sight of certain aspects of his character. So when we focus on the chronology, on the events in Mecca before the Hijrah, the events in Medina after the Hijrah, we often speak about the major incidents of his life, especially the battles 
بدر واحد خندق حديبيه ذا كونكوست اوف مكه فتح مكه تبوك ان حجه الوداع اكسترا when we discuss various other aspects of his life and character we lo- we sometimes lose sight of the very personal and individual character of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam when it came to his relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not the titles that allah had conferred on him nor the position that Allah had given him, nor the love that Allah had shown him, but rather his own relationship with Allah and how he established that relationship, how he maintained that relationship, and how he conducted himself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just as we lose sight of our own purpose in the dunya at times, even as observant Muslims, and I'll give you a very good example. Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, has the most famous collection of hadith. And before I speak of the sahih of Imam Bukhari, let me say something about the Qur'an. The Qur'an from cover to cover says a lot. And sometimes it becomes very easy to lose sight of the wood for the trees <clears throat> and we focus on individual things and lose sight of the greater picture now the quran contains so much stories and accounts of the previous nations of former prophets and many laws and injunctions and prohibitions and there are all kinds of laws and two verses of the quran are very interesting of Surah Al-Baqarah وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا تُرْجَعُونَ فِيهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ ثُمَّ تُوَفَّى كُلُّ نَفْسٍ مَا كَسَبَتْ وَهُمْ لَا يُظْلَمُونَ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا تَدَايَنْتُمْ بِدَيْنٍ إِلَىٰ أَجْلٍ مُسَمًّا فَاتْتُبُوهُ These are two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah consecutive The second one immediately follows the first and the interesting thing about both of these verses is that the second verse is the longest verse in the Qur'an. It's actually longer than many surahs. And the first of these two verses is also unique. So the second one is unique because it's the longest verse in the Qur'an. But the interesting thing about the longest verse in the Qur'an is that it doesn't speak about Jannah, Jahannam, Akhirah, the afterlife, the day of reckoning, all the former prophets, والسلام, all the previous nations, topics that are covered in great detail elsewhere in the Qur'an. In fact, this longest verse does not contain any other ibadah, <coughs> any other act of worship from the normal pillars of worship. The longest verse of the Qur'an is devoted to the topic of financial transactions of how we trade, how we should lend and borrow, and how we should record these transactions and make receipts when buying, selling, and especially when lending and borrowing to and from each other. 
So the longest verse of the Qur'an is about financial transactions and recording and registering those transactions. And there are, so it just shows how much the Qur'an has emphasized laws, dictates, injunctions throughout the book. And sometimes we become quite obsessed with these details, but we lose sight of the great picture. And the first of these two verses, the, the, the small verse immediately preceding the longest verse, is unique in itself because it was actually the final verse of the Qur'an that was revealed. And what is the, according to many narrations and reports, and what does the final verse of the Qur'an tell us? وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا تُرْجَعُونَ فِيهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ ثُمَّ تُوَفَّى كُلُّ نَفْسٍ مَا كَسَبَتْ وَهُمْ لَا يَظْلَمُونَ And fear a day, be wary of a day, in which you shall all be returned to Allah. Then every soul will be repaid in full for what it has earned. And none of them shall suffer any injustice. So the final verse of the Qur'an reminds us about our return to Allah, the afterlife, and the day of reckoning, and our accountability before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what these two verses tell us, that yes, whilst we live in the world, we are to abide by the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the laws of Allah are very detailed. So much so that they even cover financial transactions, lending and borrowing, buying and selling and making receipts for these transactions. Although it's not an obligation. Making a receipt or registering a transaction in writing, despite what the verse says, is not an obligation. Meaning, this verse merely recommends it. It's not an actual obligation. But the longest verse of the Qur'an does cover it. But, and this is similar to what the whole Qur'an contains. When you look from the beginning of the book till the end, there are so many laws that are covered. Laws of marriage, laws of divorce, laws of children, laws of families, inheritance, property, wealth. Laws related to purity, prayer, pilgrimage, charity covering almost all religious, social, and even political and personal aspects of, a individu- of an individual's or community's life. But, although the Qur'an from cover to cover in many places contains all of these laws, the first of these two verses reminds us that we should never lose sight of the greater purpose. And that greater purpose is our return to Allah in the hereafter and accountability before Allah. Similarly, I mentioned that I'll say something about the Qur'an before Sahih al-Bukhari. In Sahih al-Bukhari, which is the most famous and authentic collection of hadith, according to the Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah, the whole book contains thousands of hadith. And from beginning to end, 
there are chapters and books containing a hadith that cover almost all aspects of a person's life. And many laws are derived from these ahadith. And doctors of religion, the ulama, the scholars and the students of knowledge have rehearsed and researched and studied and debated and discussed all of these things in great detail. But when we look at the first hadith and when we look at the last hadith, ulama have interpreted and explained the purpose of the first and the last hadith. The first hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari. The book contains so many laws, but the first hadith is the hadith of Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anh, dealing with the sincerity of intention, that deeds are only by intention. And then the final hadith is, there are two, kalimatan, habibatan rahman there are two words or two sentences, two phrases, which are most dear and beloved to Allah. Heavy on the scales, but light on the tongue. Subhanallah wa bihamdi, subhanallah al-azim. Now, ulama have discussed the reason, or the reason why Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi chose these two hadith as the first and the last, because he is very precise. He is very particular. So why did Imam Bukhari choose his first hadith and the last hadith accordingly? And many ulama have explained that the reason is that, yes, beyond looking at all of these laws contained in Sahih al-Bukhari, the two most important things are that one begins, and one begins one's journey of religion being mindful of sincerity of intention. Be sincere and remain sincere throughout. And that ultimately, what's a, and what's the purpose of the last hadith, the significance of the last hadith, is that ultimately, after all of these laws, after all of these debates and discussions, the most important thing is the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the remembrance of Allah, and one's personal relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in that light, going back to the topic of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in a similar way, <coughs> whilst discussing his seerah and details of his life, it's very easy to lose sight of his personal piety and spirituality. And that's something which I would like to share a few thoughts on. The Prophet ﷺ did not come into this world to establish a kingdom, to be a ruler, to be a leader. Yes, all of those things happened. And the Prophet ﷺ was destined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be a leader, not only of this ummah, but the whole of mankind. But Ultimately, what, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? It's very interesting. Again, let's look at the beginning and the end. One of the first surahs to be revealed 
right at the beginning of his prophethood, was Surah Al-Muzzammil and, and another one, Surah Al-Muddathir. And in Surah Al-Muzzammil, right at the beginning of the Prophet ﷺ's prophethood, first Allah revealed, اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم Now, we often tend to focus on these first verses and we say, اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق Read by the name of your Lord who created. And we look at these words and we say, look how much the Qur'an has emphasized learning and education. And it's true. But has the Qur'an focused on and emphasized learning and education and reading for the sake of reading, for the sake of learning, for the sake of education itself? Or is there a greater purpose? If we think that the Qur'an has emphasized learning and reading for the sake of learning itself, then we have misunderstood the verse. Thereafter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Muzzammil and Surah Al-Muddathir. And in Surah Al-Muzzammil and Surah Al-Muddathir, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? Ya ayyuha al-Muzzammil, qumi al-layla illa qadi. نصفه أو نقص منه قليلا أو زد عليه ورتل القرآن ترتيلا. And then later Allah سبحانه وتعالى says واذكر اسم ربك وتبدل إليه تبديلا. Allah says oh one wrapped in a blanket wrapped in a shroud rise at night except for very little. Meaning, spend as much of the night as possible in prayer, in qiyam, leaving only a little. And then later Allah says, And remember the name of your Lord, and devote yourself unto Allah, an utter devotion. And the meaning of tabattul, although it means devote yourself, where does the word originate from? The word actually comes from separation and isolation. So what Allah is saying to him is that, that, O Prophet of Allah, separate yourself from everyone and everything. Isolate yourself and devote yourself to Allah with an utter devotion. So although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق, read by the name of your Lord. The purpose, even for the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wasn't just reading for the sake of reading or learning for the sake of learning, or education for the sake of education. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam didn't have to learn anything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught him everything. So for the Prophet ﷺ, the meaning of reading here isn't reading, i.e. a script for the purpose of learning. It's actually recitation. It's a recital. A recital of what Allah gave him. 
And the purpose was, as Allah says later, yes, the verses also contain a mention in Surah Al-Muzzammil of the Prophet and in Surah Al-Muddathir of rising and warning the people and conveying the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That was the duty of the Prophet sallallahu And we know about that duty. But what about his personal relationship with Allah? Of that Allah says, and devote your, remember the name of your Lord and devote yourself to Allah with an utter devotion. That was right at the beginning of his prophethood. Long before he had a band of followers. Long before he did hijrah. Long before he had a position of power and authority and influence. Long before he had any wealth coming to him. Right at the beginning of his prophethood, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, and mention the name, remember the name of your Lord and devote yourself to him with an utter devotion. Rise at night and pray. Devote yourself to standing before Allah at night and praying and worshipping. And then right at the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ According to many scholars, this was the last surah that was revealed in its entirety. The verse, which I mentioned earlier, in which Allah says, And be wary of a day in which you should all be returned to Allah. I said that was the last verse, meaning as a single verse. According to some narrations, this was actually revealed a few days before the Prophet ﷺ departed from this world. But ultimately, it's still one verse of a larger surah, a much longer surah. But which was the last surah to be revealed in its entirety? According to a number of ulama, the last surah which was revealed in its entirety was Surah Al-Nasr. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسِ يَدْخُرُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْهِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا That when you see, when the help of Allah arrives and conquest arrives, and the reference here by conquest is to the conquest of Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah. And you see the people Entering into the religion of Allah, afwaja, in hordes, in large groups. And when did this happen? After the conquest of Mecca, not just immediately, but especially in the next year, in the ninth year of Hijrah, when delegations came from all across Arabia to pay homage to Rasulullah and accept him as a leader and a messenger. And sometimes not as a messenger, but just as a leader. Because in the ninth year of Hijrah, when the Prophet ﷺ travelled up north, and he signed a number of treaties during his campaign of Tabuk, some of the treaties he signed were with a number of Christian Arab tribes. And they did not embrace Islam. Prophet ﷺ actually signed treaties with them 
And they accepted him as a leader of Arabia and they paid homage and tribute to him. But they did not embrace the religion. One of the leaders of the tribes was called Yohanna, John. So, uh, an Arab, Arab Christian, he was one of the leaders of the tribes. So the Prophet wasallam signed treaties with him. This was in the final year uh, in the ninth year of Hijrah. So after the conquest of Mecca, lots of people embraced Islam in, gr- in large groups. Some didn't. And especially in the ninth year of Hijrah. So this is a reference to that. When you see the people in entering into the religion of Allah in large groups, now the Prophet wasallam's mission has been fulfilled in the dunya. So what is he to do? What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say to him? That when the help of Allah has arrived, conquest has come, Mecca has been conquered, people are now embracing the religion, entering into the fold of Islam in large groups. When people have paid homage and tribute to you, what now? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ then hymn the name, hymn the praise of your Lord, and seek his forgiveness. Indeed, he is the most, he is oft relenting. Now, what do we understand from this verse? Well, Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sahih that Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah, says that the Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu anhumah, he had a consultative group. He had a shura. And in that shura were, the, were very senior companions, including the veterans of Badr. And they were senior in age, senior in position. These were the most senior companions. And Sayyidina Umar radiallahu surrounded himself with these elders of the community. Elders in age, elders of experience. Elders in the sense that they were the earliest Muslims to embrace. Elders in the sense that they were from the earliest veterans of the battles of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And he relied on them, he consulted them. And along with them, he would also include Abdullah ibn Abbas who was extremely young. He was actually a teenager. And according to some reports, he was only 14 years old when the Prophet ﷺ left this world. So when Umar would include him in his consultative committee that consisted of the veterans of Badr and the elders of the Sahaba, along with them he would have this 17, 18-year-old teenager. So Abdullah ibn Abbas says that some of the elders had reservations that why does Umar, why does Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar include this young lad in this group when we also have children of the same age? So Abdullah ibn Abbas says perhaps Umar knew of this, sensed this discovered this, 
And he wants to show them why. So he says one day he again convened the group and he invited me to. And then he posed a question to all of them saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, and then he recited Surah Al-Nasr, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسِ يَدْخُرُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا He recited the verse and then he said, What do you know of this surah, of these verses? So some of the elders, they explain that what this surah means. And they gave the apparent explanation of the verse, or of the surah, which is, that when the help of Allah comes, when conquest arrives, when people embrace Islam in great numbers, then him the name, him the praise of your Lord and seek his forgiveness. And some said this, others kept quiet. Then Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an turned to Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma and said to him, O ibn Abbas, what do you say? So Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, what this surah refers to. And the meaning of this surah is that Allah is informing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam of his imminent departure from this world and return to Allah, of his death. And Allah is telling him that your mission is now over. And now you should prepare to return to Allah. And in preparation for that return to Allah, engage yourself in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the remembrance of Allah. Take his name, him his praise, and seek his forgiveness. Then Umar radiallahu an said in front of the whole group, that I do not know of this surah except the same as what you know. So he demonstrated to them that Abdullah ibn Abbas was included in this committee because of his knowledge of the Qur'an. What concerns us today is that this was the last surah to be revealed in its entirety according to a number of scholars. And indeed, this was towards the end of the Prophet ﷺ's life. And the beginning verses of Surah Al-Muzzammil were at the very beginning of his prophethood. And in both, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the same thing. Take the name of your Lord. Rise in prayer. Spend the night in ibadah, in worship. Take the name of your Lord. And right at the end of his life as a prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the same thing to him. Take the name of your Lord, him his praise, seek his forgiveness. Devote yourself to worship. This was what the Prophet ﷺ did. Beyond his leadership, beyond his military campaigns, beyond his being a judge and a political leader, beyond his establishing the rule of law and the law of Allah, beyond 
all the details are, we are very familiar with of his life. This was his one of his most this was one of the most important aspects of his life, and sometimes we lose sight of it. It began with this, it ended with this, with the remembrance of Allah with the dhikr of Allah, with the worship of Allah, with that relationship and connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala employed him to convey the same to the creation. But, ultimately, the greatest devotion of the Prophet sallallahu beyond the da'wah and the invitation and the work, was to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. In Surah Al-Nashrah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the same thing. And in Surah Al-Duha, the same thing. These two surahs are surahs of seerah. Because they are devoted to the topic of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah addresses him. I've covered these surahs in detail. But some of the verses that really matter, that and surely the afterlife is far better for you than the first life. And in Surah Al-Nashrah, towards the end, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ Again, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ When you are relieved, i.e. of your work and your duty, then what should you do, O Messenger of Allah? This is a direct address to him. The, the wording is not plural to all the believers, although uh, it also affects us by meaning and by extension, but primarily and originally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke exclusively to the Prophet sallallahu and directly to him. فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ That when you are relieved of your duty from all of the things, what should you do? فَنْصَبْ فَنْصَبْ means tire yourself in the worship of Allah. وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ And unto your Lord hasten. Be eager towards your Lord. This was the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Eagerness towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Zeal to Allah azza wa jalla. Devotion to Allah. The taking of his name, the hymning of his praise. Doing his istighfar. Or doing istighfar. Seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. We learn from many ahadith recorded by virtually all the authors of hadith. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says... That indeed I seek Allah's forgiveness and I repent to him more than 70 times a day. More than 70 times a day. This was part of his dhikr. Rasulullah would remain engaged in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. At night the tilawah of the Qur'an. At times during the day tilawah of the Qur'an. And at times other tilawah. When he sat, when he rose... There are adhkar and du'as mentioned for almost all occasions. Furthermore, when we make du'a, we like to ask for specific things. And indeed, that's good. There is no harm in it whatsoever. However, 
One of the interesting things about the dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was that rarely do you find him praying for anything personal in that individual personal things. When we pray, we pray for lots of very specific individual and personal things. We learn from that hadith that most of the dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, most of his duas were very general and comprehensive. They were very comprehensive, known as the all-encompassing comprehensive duas. And they were very general. And this is how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would pray for himself as well with general, all-encompassing, comprehensive du'as. Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi, relates a hadith in his sahih. From Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha, radiyallahu anha, she says, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَذْكُرُ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ أَحْيَانِهِ That Allah's Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, would remember Allah at all of his moments, in all of his moments, at all times. And the wording is very specific. Ala kulli Meaning, not just that he would remember Allah all the time. There's a pronoun pointing to Rasulullah saying he would remember Allah at all his times. He would remember Allah on all his occasions. He would remember Allah in all his moments. And this is probably one of the best translations. He would remember Allah in all his moments. And this is why we, when we, the dua, when we leave the bathroom, when we leave the private area, after answering the call of nature, one of the sunnah duas is, Ghufranak. Imam Abu Dawud and Imam Tirmidhi relate this, that when the Prophet would emerge from the secluded area after answering the call of nature, he would say, Ghufranak, meaning, your forgiveness, O Allah. I seek your forgiveness. Why seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after answering the call of nature? And one of the simplest explanations is that just as Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says, he would forever remain engaged in the dhikr and remembrance of Allah at all times, in all of his moments, except, and for, except when he had to answer the call of nature. On those occasions, he wouldn't remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's almost like Allah, as soon as he emerged... <clears throat> He sought Allah's forgiveness for not being able to remember Allah and engage in his dhikr for that short period. That is the purpose of saying ghufranak. Prophet ﷺ remained connected with Allah. That was his life. Dhikr, tilawa, ibadah. And what kind of ibadah? We can't even begin to imagine the ibadah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's mentioned about Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu. <coughs> According to some narrations, Ali radiyallahu anhu said 
that if the veil was to be removed, if the veil between us and the afterlife was to be removed, I would not increase in my conviction. That if the veils were to be removed, I would not increase in my conviction. Meaning my conviction is already of, at that level that even if the veils were removed, the exposure of the other world would not increase my conviction. Because it's already there. If that was the conviction of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu then what can we say of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Sometimes we learn from the hadith when he prayed salah, and most of these narrations are a reference to the salah which he led in the eighth year of Hijrah, sorry, the Salah which he led towards the end of his life, not the eighth year, but the tenth year, when uh, his son Ibrahim, radiyallahu an, passed away, and that was on the same day that there was a solar eclipse. So he led the Salah of eclipse. And on that occasion, when he led the Salah, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam spoke about Jannah and Jahannam before him in Salah. Veils would be removed before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He would see things that others couldn't. His whole when we when I say that, what can how can we compare our dhikr to the dhikr of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam when we say that he always remained engaged in dhikr? And his life was one full of ibadah. His ibadah wasn't like, as we think, a series of postures and movements and motions and recitations. His salah was of a completely different nature. His fasting was of a completely different nature. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum relate that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Whenever we wanted to see him fasting, we would find him fasting. Whenever we wanted to see him not fasting, we would discover that he wasn't fasting. What that means is, if some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum thought that we want to follow the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So if he's fasting, we want to follow his example. But not everybody could keep that up. And at times, some of them felt that maybe if the Prophet ﷺ wasn't fasting, that would be a relief for us too, so that we can follow his example. So it was so balanced and miraculous that when people wanted to discover him fasting, he would be fasting. When, he want, when, they want, when, he, when some of them wanted to discover him not fasting and being in a state of iftar, non-fasting, they would discover that he wasn't fasting. And the reason for mentioning this particular hadith now is that the Sahaba Anas radiallahu anhu says the same thing about his tahajjud salah. He says whenever we wanted to find him praying tahajjud salah, we would discover that he would be praying. And whenever we wanted to find that he wasn't engaged in the Hajjid Salah, but that rather he was resting, we would discover that he wasn't in the Hajjid. His condition was miraculous and mysterious. 
His ibadah was different. His salah was different. His tahajj was different. His fasting was different. Uh, to mention something about his fasting, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi relates that the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, they, they saw that the Prophet sallallahu was fasting continuously, known as wisal, in that he wouldn't eat anything. So he, in fact, he wouldn't eat anything at all. So they decided to follow his example. And the Prophet ﷺ noticed and realized this. He said to them, do not do wisal. La tuwasilu. Do not do wisal. Wisal means continuation. Meaning, do not, con- do not practice or adopt a continuous fast. Whereby you don't eat at all. He said, if you do, the most you should do is until sahur. So the Sahaba, عنهم, because they were eager to follow his example, they said, Ya Rasulullah, you fast wisal, you fast continuously. So the Prophet وسلم, said, يُطْعِمُنِي رَبِّي وَيَسْقِينِي I am not like you. My Lord feeds me, nourishes me, and gives me to drink. Gives me to eat and gives me to drink. يُطْعِمُنِي رَبِّي وَيَسْقِينِي Now the meaning of يُطْعِمُنِي رَبِّي وَيَسْقِينِي that my Lord feeds me and waters me, nourishes me, and gives me to drink, is not that the Prophet ﷺ used to receive secret food. If that was the case, that in the darkness of the night, in privacy, hidden from other people's view, Rasulullah ﷺ was furnished with a meal, then where is the miracle in that? No, the meaning of يُطْعِمُنِي رَبِّي وَيَسْقِينِي is that without any food or drink, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a unique, special, hidden, miraculous strength without any food whatsoever. He was nourished and sustained miraculously when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to. This is why he was able to fast continuously, without interruption, without any effect on him. If that was his fasting, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a certain strength, then imagine his salah. What manner of salah was it? And he had no reason, he had no reason to do istighfar. The verse says, seek the forgiveness of Allah. But Allah had already told him, So that Allah may forgive you your past sins and your future. He was forgiven. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha said to, says, in a famous hadith related by most authors, that the Prophet ﷺ used to stand for so long at night, in tahajjud, in qiyam, that his feet would swell up. His feet would become swollen. And not just swollen, but they would become cracked. So she says, taking pity on him, she would say to him, O Messenger of Allah, why? When Allah has forgiven you your sins, when Allah has said, that Allah has forgiven you your past and your future, 
then why do you burden yourself in this manner? Prophet said, Afala akuna abdan shakura. Should I not be a grateful servant to Allah? So he didn't do this because the Prophet was praying for Jannah or worshipping for Jannah or for, to seek forgiveness, rather. He did this and he continued to do this because of that unique bond with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in gratitude to Allah. This was his dhikr, this was his ibadah. We've learned from the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam that Jibreel alayhi salam came to the Prophet in the form of a man and asked him a number of questions about Islam, about Iman. And according to the narration of Muslim, the third, the first one, first question was about Islam, apparent submission. The second question was about Iman, inner faith. And the third question was about Ihsan. So the Prophet ﷺ was asked by Jibreel alayhi salam that, Mal Ihsan? What's Ihsan? So the Prophet ﷺ, literally it means to do good. What's goodness? But here it's not just goodness, it's a unique and lofty rank. So the Prophet ﷺ replied that Ihsan is, أَن تَعْبُدَ اللَّهَ كَأَنَّكَ تَرَاهُ فَإِن لَمْ تَكُنْ تَرَاهُ فَإِنَّهُ يَرَاكُ That Ihsan is that you worship, you serve Allah as though you see Him. And if not, then that He sees you. Now, for most people, only the second definition applies. I.e., we are talking about the best and the elite. That even they cannot reach that rank whereby they serve Allah and worship Him as though they see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not with their physical eyes, but rather with the sight of their hearts. For most people, even amongst the elite, amongst the most pious and God-fearing and the most conscious, the most they can achieve is that they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the constant conviction and the knowledge and the continuous awareness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watchful over them and observant of them. That ensures that they observe taqwa for every waking moment. And these are the elite. Very few, very few, can reach that rank. But they do, some do, reach that rank, which is of the first definition, that Ihsan is that you serve Allah, you worship Him, as though you see Him. And it's possible, and some do attain it. If some in the Ummah of Rasulullah can attain that rank, then what can be said of the Prophet himself. Didn't he worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and serve him all the time and remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time in such a manner that as though he was seeing Allah, he was observant of Allah, he was watchful of Allah and that he was, he had a constant sighting of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his ihsan was of the highest rank. And therefore, in light of this hadith, it can be said 
that the Prophet worshipped Allah in such and constantly. Remember, ibadah doesn't just mean ritual worship. It means service. And that's for every moment. For us, it would be every waking moment. But for Rasulullah it would be even whilst asleep. Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him when Aisha radiyallahu anha, she said, Ya Rasulullah, you've just slept. And he said, Know that my eyes sleep, but my heart does not. My eyes do sleep. That my eyes do sleep, they do rest, but my heart does not. And the meaning of the heart not sleeping is not that the heart doesn't rest. That's true for every human being. Even while sleeping, the heart continues to work. The meaning of the heart not resting or the heart not sleeping is that is one of consciousness. That Rasulullah wasalam's eyes were shut. And although he couldn't see the dunya in front of him, the sight of the heart of Rasulullah was still in full seeing mode and was working. And the heart of Rasulullah remained watchful and observant and in full sight of what? Not the dunya, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All the time. This is why towards the end of his life, Rasulullah when he was given a choice of staying in the dunya or returning to Allah, Rasulullah chose returning to Allah because that was the connection. The dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was such. In fact, when Allah says in Surah Al-Ahzab, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهُ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرِ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا That indeed, there is for you in the Messenger of Allah, Uswatun Hasana, a beautiful example, a beautiful precedent. For one who fears Allah and the final day, and remembers Allah, Excessively. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention, mentions this surah, mentions this verse about the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa In the context of the campaign of Khandaq, also known as Ghazwatul Ahzab, and that's where the surah has been named, why the surah has been named Ahzab. And this was to do with the siege of Medina that took place in the fifth year of Hijrah, when a huge army surrounded the city of Medina and laid siege to it. Well, they didn't literally surround it, but one of the openings of Medina, they laid siege to the city from that angle. It was a very trying and testing time for the believers. And the Prophet ﷺ, whose authority wasn't absolute till that, uh, at that stage, there were factions in the city with whom he had an agreement. 
And as per that agreement, the various factions of the city had pledged that if there was ever a common threat to the city, then despite their, all their other differences, they would work hand in hand and together to collectively defend the city. So the Prophet ﷺ on this sensitive occasion, this is according to one narration, on this sensitive occasion, he sought reassurance from some of those factions in the city that they would honor their pledge and they, they would join the Muslims in defending the city from this common threat. So the Prophet ﷺ sent some messengers to inquire from the leaders of this faction and sought assurance from them that you will defend the city. They refused and they were emboldened by the enemy outside the city who had sent secret messengers to them and told them that join us we will attack from the outside. There was a huge army. We will attack from outside the city. And you disrupt things from within the city. And thus we will crush the Muslims. So they were emboldened by this offer. And by the presence of this huge army outside the city. So when the Sahaba عنهم, went to seek their assurance... They insulted them and told them, what treaty? We have no treaty with Muhammad. We do not recognize any such treaty. So the Sahaba returned to deliver the tragic news to the Prophet Now consider the situation. It was a very difficult and distressing time for the Muslims. And Allah himself describes the situation in the following words, that إِذْ جَاءُوكُمْ مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ وَمِنْ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ وَإِذْ زَاغَتِ الْأَبْصَارِ وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرِ وَتَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ الظُّنُونَ هُنَالِكَ بْتُلِيَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَزُلْزِلُوا زِلْزَالٍ شَدِيدًا And remember when they, meaning the enemy, they came upon you from above you. And from beneath you. And this is a reference to the enemy laying siege to the city from one angle, as I said. And this was actually from the north, the northeast. Laying siege to you from above. And the enemy coming at you from below. And this is, what, this is where the other threat was from. From the south... Sorry... The northwest, not northeast, northwest, and from the southeast, where the settlements of some of these factions were. So remember when they came upon you from above you and from beneath you. And when the eyes became fixed in horror and in fear. And when the hearts leapt to the throats in fear, and you were imagining all kinds of thoughts about Allah, i.e. of despair, a sense of abandonment, and fear that Allah was going to abandon you. On that occasion, 
the believers were tested. And they were shaken, a great shaking. One can just imagine the plight of the Muslims and the climate of fear and anxiety and terror in the city. If Allah describes it in such words. And then the Prophet ﷺ receives the Sahaba عنهم, who delivered to him the message that the other factions have turned against us and they have reneged on their pledge. We are now facing a mortal threat. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he learned of this, he didn't even learn of it verbally. He, wait, he was eagerly waiting for them, anxiously waiting for them rather. And when the Sahaba عنهم, arrived from a distance, the, the few that he had sent, they signaled to him from a distance by shaking their heads negatively. So the Prophet وسلم, understood that this faction was not going to help or assist and they had abandoned them and reneged on their pledge. One can just imagine the plight of the Muslims. One can just imagine how the Prophet ﷺ felt. So this is why I said, according to one narration, what did the Prophet ﷺ do and why did he do it? Prophet ﷺ, when he learnt of this, what did he do? He lay down on the ground in Medina, outside, on the rock, he lay down on the hard ground and he began engaging in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And according to one narration, this is the backdrop to the revelation of this verse. That verily there is for you in the Messenger of Allah a beautiful example. For one who fears Allah and in the final day and who remembers Allah excessively. Allah mentions this verse in the context of Ahzab and Khandaq. That even at such a critical juncture, the Prophet ﷺ lay down on the ground and engaged in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah would remain engaged in the remembrance of Allah in all of his moments. And as I said, we can't even begin to imagine the quality and the nature of his ibadah, of his worship let alone the quality of his dhikr. His ibadah, we, for us, salah is an obligation. To the extent that when we have food, a choice of food or salah, what do we wish to do first? If we are told dinner's ready, or, and it's time for salah. Do you want to pray first and then eat, or eat first and then pray? Many of us choose to pray first. Why? Not necessarily because we are very devoted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and wish to engage in prayer and devotion. Rather, our philosophy and calculation is that let me get this out of the way quickly. So let me pray in haste and eat at leisure. And that's why Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah says that one should eat first. And he doesn't just say it. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, what Imam Abu Hanifa says is something else I'll mention in a moment. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that if the food arrives and time for salah arrives as well, you have your food first. And the reason is, as Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi says, you should eat first and then pray later because I would rather make my food my salah rather than my salah my food. Meaning, why do we want to pray first and eat later? Because we don't want to be eating and thinking, oh, I still, I still have to pray, I still have to pray. It's almost like a burden. It's an obligation, but we treat it like a burden. It's something I have to do and get out of the way. So even whilst we're eating, we fear that we will be reminded of the fact that we still have to pray. So our food, we're not able to enjoy our food. Our food is plagued by the thought and remembrance and the reminder that we still have to pray. That's what Imam Abu Hanifa says. So our food becomes our salah. So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi says, I'd rather make my food my salah than my salah my food. In that, I'm praying and I'm looking forward to the food. So we treat salah, some of us, not all, some of us treat our salah as an obligation, as a burden, something to be, uh, something to be done, to get over and done with and out of the way so that we can eat at leisure. Rasulullah for him he says in a hadith, that the coolness of my eyes has been placed in salah. And in fact, the full hadith is that three things have been made dear and beloved to me of your dunya, of your world. Three things have been made dear and beloved to me of your world. Fragrance. Fragrance is of this world. And the Prophet ﷺ loved Sweet smells and fragrance. He loved perfume and fragrance. Number two, women, spouses. Prophet ﷺ married. He had wives. He had a romantic and marital relationship with his wives. But he regarded this as one of the pleasures of the dunya, just as he regarded fragrance as a pleasure of the dunya. Then he says, the third thing of your dunya, which has been made beloved to me, is salah. But he describes it as, that the coolness of my eyes has been placed in salah. Now, before I explain that, the, me- the question is, how can salah be of the dunya? But we're talking about the appearance. And this is it. The salah, the appearance of salah is undoubtedly from the dunya. And for many of us, even our inner salah is still of the dunya. But for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the exterior of his salah was of the dunya. But internally, Allahu Akbar. Where was he? That's why he says, وَجُعِلَتْ قُرَّةُ عَيْنِي فِي الصَّلَاةِ the coolness of my eyes has been placed in salah. 
And for him, it was a relief. Imam Abu Dawood say, relates a hadith that the Prophet وسلم, one of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the full hadith is that one of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said to some people, he said in the presence of some people, that I wish to pray and thereby seek relief and comfort in my prayer. So some of those who were present didn't understand this and in a way expressed their, they questioned this, saying that how can you say that you want to pray because you wish to be relieved by prayer, you seek relief and comfort in prayer? So he said, I heard the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say to Bilal radiyallahu Ya Bilal, aqim salah wa arihna biha, O Bilal, give the iqamah for salah and thereby give us comfort and relief. Because the Prophet sought special relief and comfort in prayer. For him, that was a coolness of the eyes. This was the life of Rasulullah Very deep and profound connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dhikr of Allah in a manner that we can't even begin to imagine. Istighfar in a manner that we can't even begin to imagine. Ibadah in a manner that we can't even begin to imagine. This was his relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, this was one of the most prominent aspects of his character. Over and above and well beyond some of the other details that, that we are more familiar with and accustomed to. And we should take... That is an example. And try to establish a similar... Well, we can't even manage something close, but we should attempt to follow in his footsteps and try to establish such a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, moving beyond the laws of halal and haram and the appearance of religion. Unless anyone misunderstand, I'm not for a moment suggesting that these are unimportant. No, of course they are vital. Haram, the, the laws of haram and halal are most important. They can't be dismissed. But they are there for a greater purpose. Ilm is important, but not as a goal and objective in itself. The education of religion is important, but not as a goal and objective in itself. Ilm is important, education is important. Observing halal and haram are important. Learning about halal and haram are important. Determining halal and haram is important. But not halal and haram and the laws are not a goal and an objective in themselves. All of these have a greater purpose. And that greater purpose is our connection and our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our ibadah of him trying to follow in the footsteps of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah azza wa jal grant us such tawfiq and ability. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.